truck. Will you please take me to the airport? Jesus. Please, okay? You don't have to talk to me if you don't want to. It's fine. But I can't be by myself right now. Okay, I'm, uh... I'm afraid of what I'm gonna do. You know, I... I can't get there by myself. I'm not going anywhere with you. Now, if you feel like you're a danger to yourself, you can sit down for a few minutes until you feel calm enough to go. But I am not going anywhere with you. But I'm afraid that I'm, I'm gonna do something, okay? Did, did you hear what I said? Yeah. It's a hell of a story. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And we're at episode 47. And you know what? It's good to have actors in the news, to be the front of the news. Vladimir Zeminsky, famed actor of Love in a Big City. Love in a Big City 2, right there. Known for his film career. Is he? Yeah. Oh. Known to be a... He was on the Ukrainian Dancing with the Stars, and now... There's a Ukrainian Dancing with the Stars? There was. With all the problems that are happening in the Ukraine, how do they still manage to, like, get it up enough to have a Dancing with the it's, Stars? It's Tansy Z... Zerkani. Yep, there it is. That's been running for seven seasons. Hmm. And, you know, now people maybe will be introduced to his, his, his great acting as they, as they research... Them. Zelensky with two two eyes apparently maybe on every should, part of that memo. Maybe we should not do a uh, uh, a list episode next week when we'll just review <laughs> the, the films of the Ukrainian president. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. It would be um, good speaking of reviewing things and looking back to the past and trying to reclaim, looks like Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and uh, Jeff Goldblum will have big roles in Jurassic World Three. Oh my god! Because you know. Everyone knows that movie's going to stink already. Well, Jeff Goldblum I'm okay with, and maybe even Laura Dern, too. Yeah, I'm pretty upset about Sam Neill letting himself be dragged into it. You know, yeah. I was okay at Jurassic Park 3. Like, it was okay that he was in that 87-minute-long movie where the military shows up at the end. But yeah. I'm sad he's going to let himself get dragged down. Wouldn't it be great, though, if they, they just got rid of Bryce Dallas Howard? Just replaced and, with Laura Dern. Like, and... Um, <laughs> I'm Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt. I'm just like, nah, we're just going to have these guys back. The, the same characters that they played, oh. but just Chris Pratt's character played by Sam Neill. <laughs> Sam Neill, Neil, yeah. yeah. Or intermittently Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum, depending mm-hmm. on the scene. Or let, they should just took, take the or, cast of Event Horizon and put out. them in this movie. Laura Dern plays Owen. Mm. And Jeff Goldblum plays the Bryce Dallas Howard character. So he runs around in high heels. And Sam Neill plays the in, uh, Indominus or whatever. No, no, he plays, the, he plays that water dinosaur that's in all of them. The Mosasaurus. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be good. I'd watch that movie. I, I would definitely see a Sam Neill Mosasaurus <laughs> movie. It's, it's just a really bad like, green eating a shark. Screen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Here comes the Mosasaurus. It's like an episode of Conan O'Brien. And he turns and looks at the camera as he does it. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. But it's actually not, he's not in it. They just superimpose images of him. Yeah. Like they splice film from 
at the mouth of madness mm-hmm. in order to do it. Mm. It's like when he has a screamy face. That's like the mouth of like when he eats somebody. Yeah. Speaking of screamy faces, <laughs> October's fast approaching. You know, we, we said we weren't going to do this this year. Continuing on the what? What's that? Do an Oktoberfest like yeah. Run. Well, it just happened. You know, because what, what, what are we going to drink? Can't avoid IPAs. it. They're everywhere. We're going to drink. All right, we haven't we haven't not done the Rosemary Baby yet either, huh? No. I don't think we did that last season. We should probably do that this season. We didn't do any pumpkins last week, season. We, we... We'll probably have to do pumpkins. I think, I think we just have to go uh, on theme. All right, fine. Because we're idiots. Yeah. We're two dummies. Maybe that's what we do next week. We do Rosemary's yeah, Baby we gotta and wait drink October. the Rosemary's Baby. We gotta wait till... What? What are you talking about? No, no, we just review it. We just, instead oh. of reviewing a new movie, we just review Rosemary's <laughs> I was just looking at the list going like, I... Do not remember that being on it's my list. number one. Speaking of which, this is the last film today in our lists on the first page of my list. Me too. We go to second page now. Well, no, on, on page two of your list. No, but like now we're on the front of yeah. my three-page list. Yeah, we're on the front, guys. The big deal. Woof. All right, let's pop it open. It I is. Mean, um, I've already popped it open because you warned me that it's jostling it's around harpoon. your car. They are local. They're Boston and Windsor, Vermont. Um, they're pretty big, Just though. Just in case somebody got, to, got real angry. Yeah, they're, they're, they're almost fairly. Yeah. Um, the one thing I wanted to they're do. like the size of um, Allagash. They're not yeah. Sam Adams. like. Huge, no, they're but... employee-owned. Um, I might have already said that. This is just their Oktoberfest, a multi-robust classic German-style Mars and beer. It is whatever. How many? Uh, 5.3. 5.3. So... Ugh. Tap it. Bang. Actually, we, I've always said dink it. We don't have the good mythical morning thing, but tap it makes more sense from a beer standpoint, doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty good. Tap it, you know. Tap. Like yeah. You tap tap it. Beer. Tap. Yep. Took us. Took me a year and ten months to figure it out. We got there. Real dummy. This. There. This. You know what this is? First page logic coming in. My mind is clear right now. Yeah. At last, all. It's like about. a. a Growing into the, the next stage of life. Mm. Um, yeah, that's okay. It, yep. It's a. <laughs> I mean, usually I'm gonna describe. If I'm compelled to describe a beer, um, I will do so. This beer I am compelled not to describe because it is a flavor in my mouth, which isn't unpleasant. No, it's a little dry. It's a little drier than I want from Oktoberfest. Yeah. Uh, uh, tastes, like, tastes like an October. It tastes like every Oktoberfest. I've had that is by the numbers Oktoberfest. Yeah. No, not bad. Just maybe they need a corporation is. to take them over. Maybe the employees aren't doing a good job. It's time for I'm glad some. I'm glad we've decided. It's time to, for some capitalists to seize the means of production. I'm glad we've decided to make this episode about like calling out the employees of the Harpoon Brewing Company. Get it together, guys. Yeah. If you're gonna put it on your can, you're gonna give yourself really good health care or something. No, how about how about you make beer that make a tasty a beer? Taste. Um. Speaking of a, a, a tasty beer, <laughs> I can't do it. You gotta do it. I can't do the transition. You're terrible. We've already we've established that you're bad. I am bad ways. at transitions. Mm. I don't have a good one for this either. We saw a Netflix movie again. Wait, what's what's the transition to this movie? That's well, actually a really good transition for this movie. It's but, like how do we how do we get here? Yeah. Where did this come from? Who asked for it? Um, you know, the movie we're talking... about. sure Comedy Bang Bang did. Um, we're talking about Between Two Ferns, the movie. You killed Matthew McConaughey. He's dead? 
He's brought back to life, but he was momentarily dead. You owe me. Go across the country, get 10 more episodes of Between Two Ferns. 10, your dumb internet talk show, and you give me a network talk show. I'm a white man, and I'm straight, and I deserve it. Green as ever. Is the width off to you? We're taking Between Two Ferns on the road. My guest today is Benedict Cumberbatch, but Benedict Kemp Benefit Lumberjacks. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. That's what it is. Oh, Between Two Ferns is the movie fictional adaptation of the Funnier web, Die Funnier Die web series show that Zach Galifianakis does, where he um, awkwardly interviews a another celebrity while sitting between two ferns. Um, there's been some famous ones, like the Barack Obama one and the Bradley Cooper one. The Hillary Clinton one was pretty notably um, awkward because Hillary Clinton did a good job of playing like she didn't realize that she was on yeah. a comedy TV Jennifer show. Jennifer Lawrence apparently is one is pretty good. I haven't there's watched a lot of these. No, um, I've watched a few. I love Zach Galifianakis, but I've just I've never found these. I don't watch a lot of like YouTube video. See, I watch a lot of YouTube things. videos, but I just don't really care about Funny or Die. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, so this the, is a road trip movie, he, which is framed studios, as like a documentary, yeah. also. Which I don't know. I know why they need to do that, but it's framed as like kind of like a mockumentary. Their studio is destroyed, and they have to film ten episodes on the road. Because Will Ferrell, uh, founder of Funny or Die, which he needs I, money might be for a true thing. I'm not even. He sure is. That's it. true. true. He needs money for cocaine. So he... That'd be great if, like, <laughs> they should have got Joseph Gordon-Levitt and made it, like, hit record was trying to take over between two That would have been that good. That would actually have been a better, so, better premise. So, Mario, that brings up the point that, like, nobody thought very hard about this movie. No. No, not at all. <laughs> Even, like, Will Ferrell, like, who's playing, like, obviously a parody of himself, dips right into classic, like, Will Ferrell things. Oh, just doing, like, the I like drugs right, and Right, which alcohol. they call him out on. Yeah. Like, Will Ferrell just showing up in movies. And so the washed-out Hollywood actor from so Roca Kane. So we get money, yeah. Um, but yeah, so they have to do ten episodes, and or they have to record ten episodes of this. They drive across the country and interview people that I don't think live in the places where they find them. I doubtful, maybe. I mean, maybe Peter Dinklage lives in Sedona, Arizona. Maybe which is pretty. <laughs> David Larriman lives somewhere. Well, he does live in Indiana. And they, is that where they are? Yeah. Indiana? Okay, so there you go. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if John Hamm would be signing books. In that Kansas, in that Kansas church, <laughs> for like six hours. Yeah, um, but that—that's kind of the point of it to me. Is is some of the actual segments, the fern segments, are, are funny. Um, kind of like like they, they, they kind of like the the joke runs sour really quick because it's the same awkward. The awkwardness works over a five-minute segment, but I when it's that, repeated over yeah, and over again. That, so, which brings to the point where, like, the interesting ones are the ones where they kind of break from the mold. So, like, the John Legend one, I think, is really funny. I think it's all because right. it has like the funniest. <laughs> like, I think I think the Letterman one is is the strongest like overall segment, just because Letterman feeds yeah, off of it I really the well. Tessa Thompson one was pretty. Yeah, was, was pretty strong. It was okay. Because uh, it seemed like she wanted to be part of the joke, and he, like, wouldn't let her be part of the joke. And then uh, she just kind of fell out of the joke. Yeah. Um, the Paul Rudd one had had my favorite joke, though, by far. Which was? The, uh, pra- are you a practicing Jew joke? Which I don't want to spoil that one. But that that's, that punchline yeah. was just great. Um, but overall, it's, it's just... <laughs> I mean, if you really love the comedy styling of Comedy Bang Bang, 
like the little Lipkiss and the Pop Tompkins, who has a much smaller role than I thought he would have in this. As the pseudo Jeopardy host, that's yeah, exactly. Just watching on TV, um, that I could see. You know, you got a lot of that kind of like Scott Ackerman kind of like but it's not, very yeah. flat, like flat level jokes um, that kind of play to like a mild awkwardness, but kind of still weirdly grounded. If you like us, if you tonight, like that, yeah. are drinking like a few beers and then like maybe you go home later than you want it to be and like you get a bag of chips or something out of your cabinet and you really are looking for something to for you to drink that last beer while you eat your chips before you go to bed. You're gonna do all right with this. Yeah, you know what I mean, it's not gonna hurt you. It's like barely. You're gonna think eighty minutes. You're gonna so. think weirdly that you're watching The Office because there's a lot of like Michael's like Zach Galifianakis has a lot of Michael Scotty things in this, and because it's like the frame documentary and he's talking to the camera, there's a lot of that kind of Office Parks and Rec thing going on here, which I don't think is you know necessary or good. Um, no, exactly. But it's, again, it's not gonna. You're not gonna feel like you wasted your life. There's a couple of good chuckles. There, there are. Um, Peter Dinklage worrying about Lauren Lapka stealing his Fabergé egg collection is is really funny. Yeah, no, that, that's good. Um, yeah, I wasn't in love with it though. I just no, 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 there's nothing to be in love with. Yeah, well, no, I just I wasn't. I only really laughed at the the Paul Rudd joke, and I just was found dis- that disappointing. That typically, even with these small little between tur- like fern segments, I can find one thing to laugh at each segment. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I just was like one thing in the entire. Well, you know what was really funny is that I watched this, and I don't, we don't need to belabor the point of this movie, but I watched this movie as I read like that, um, you know, something that came across my news feed was that like Marvel is unhappy with, we're seeing but moving away from Captain Marvel because they're unhappy. They were really counting on Spider Man to kind of um, give that character some personality. And I was like, huh, that sounds no good. I kind of like Captain Marvel. It was fun. But then, like the Brie Larson sketch on this is just Brie Larson sitting there like which saying is, pretty much nothing which I think is playing up the uh, I, I don't know I hope not it just made me feel sad for her I was like I hope this isn't like her next thing oh, it's yeah. like no I'm just very serious now yeah. about everything speaking of being very serious for a lot of things mm-hmm. um, but also not serious about your science Ad Astra the new James Gray film it's crazy out there. There's fires everywhere and plane crashes. They're calling it the search. Major, we have some highly classified information. What can you tell us about the Lima project? Its objective was to search for advanced extraterrestrial life. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. This might come as quite a shock to you. Your father was experimenting with a highly classified material that could threaten our entire solar system. All life would be destroyed. We're counting on you to find out what's happening out there. In the near future, they tell us that, but I don't buy what they... By near future, geologically speaking? There's a picture of... Tommy Lee Jones's character in it, and it says like apostrophe thirty eight. He couldn't have been born in nineteen thirty eight because that wouldn't make it the near future. I was thinking two thousand thirty eight, and I wasn't sure if that was like See, a I, younger you know what, picture of him, and this is like thirty you know what, years you know in the what future. Actually, from makes that. me think that might be possible. Is in the end, 
when he's setting the, the nuclear device, it says like 21, 24 is the time he sets at it, right? It's like three hours or whatever. Yep. And I was like, is that James Gray, like a little clever play to say like what year it is? I guess I could believe it's 100 years from now. I feel like it's too now. far, though. Yeah, but like what is near future? Whatever. The future where there are moon pirates. Um, In the near future, there's been a lot of energy surges uh, destroying various cities and, you know, antennas, tall antennas that I thought were going to be a space elevator, but were not a space elevator. Um, and they are coming from the Lima Project, which is Brad Pitt's Roy McBride's father, Clifford McBride's uh, leading research project to find life outside the universe uh, as they leave the heliosphere of mm-hmm. Neptune, which is still predom- 100% within the heliosphere. There's a reason why the Voyager just broke the heliosphere after, you know, passing Pluto Maybe they figured, quite a far bit away, they figured which some is about out. twice the distance from Neptune, I mean, from, you know, the sun that Neptune is, but whatever. Mario, I hope you're, I hope you're <laughs> confident in all your facts. We may have a very like, science-based... I, like, I, like I mean, it depends... Depends on the like the, depends on the time we're yeah maybe they figured this in the orbit. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that? I don't think that. Um, no, no, I'm saying in in this reality, maybe they figured out that like oh the maybe. heliosphere is here. Yeah, remove the heliosphere, and we can definitely fly through Neptune's rings with only a door yeah. shielding. Us. Um, going vastly off track, but he has been projecting antimatter out to the universe to try to find life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is the rumor that's been damaged and that's just the cause of the surges. And now Roy has been tasked with going to Mars to send a signal, a, a, a desperate plea to his mm-hmm. father to shut down the, um, antimatter antenna to prevent the destruction of humanity. He's going to put a nuke in it. We need those. Re- well, that becomes like the fail safe plan, but you know, we need those real super high stakes. Of the destruction of the solar system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that one guy who's just leaning back in his chair with his arms around the back casually the whole time and the smiling. Man bun. What's his name? No, that's a different guy. Oh. That's the early guy. Revis or something his name is. And he's just very casually leaning back in his chair while he's delivering this message. Like, could be the whole solar system. Oh, yeah, John Ortiz, yeah. Yeah, he's like, oh, okay. You don't seem very serious about this. Yeah. Just, we got it. Well, I guess they have it. Figured out because the the backup plan is to just nuke the Lima project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess they don't want to do that because they want him to come back to get his data. Mm. Um, this is, I guess, a quasi sister film to Lost City of Z, in, in many ways. Uh, James Gray's last film I thought about I didn't see explores. That one. I saw it when it first came out. Explores to um, lost Amazonian city. Um, once again, dealing with that father and son relationship that this film is heavily with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw it today. Mm. What is your take on this? Ah, it's weird. It, um, yeah, it, same. I have, I have it same actually take. made me, which we will talk about off air because this has no bearing on here, but it made me appreciate high life like so much more. Which we don't want to turn this into another conversation about high life for sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't have five <laughs> shots of rum in me. Um, well, I didn't drink that much. Yet. But it's a really beautiful. Um, in a lot of ways, wonderful movie. Like, I, there was parts of it when I was watching it, and I was like, I kind of love this movie. But then there are other parts when I was kind of like, eh. That's a choice, yeah. It's weird. Like, so I mentioned the Moon Pirates. I don't understand the Moon Pirates. I guess they're something about resources? How did they get to the, to the Moon 
how, how, where do they live? Like, well, to, how do the people have access to this technology where they can just build, like, rogue structures on the moon? There is, there I, I is don't understand. a lot of kind of hand wavish descriptions of the universe being built. In that, you know, we talk about, you know, Roy talks early on about if he ever served. Um, and he talks about like, the yeah, three yeah, years yeah. in the Arctic Circle. And you get the idea that there's, there's always a tendency to be near war um, between, like, the powers of the world over resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're talking well, about, like, resources are yeah, fading yeah, on yeah. Earth. And, like, now they're trying to get natural resources from and the I moon get that. and it's Mars. Kind of like, it's, it's, that kind of took it more as, like, the idea of maybe these pirates aren't necessarily individual pirates, but they're kind of, like, rogue kind of agents. Not necessarily idea even rogue, pirates. but agents of another country yeah who not are not technically flying a flag kind of like buccaneers were in, in the time yeah, yeah. Um, um it's that kind of because this movie heavily sorts feels like it's just a a seafaring movie uh, like a 15th 16th century seafaring movie well, it's apocalypse in modern it's apocalypse day. now yeah, in space yeah, yeah exactly which it's, it's, it's hard darkness. darkness in space um which if it's a heart of darkness or apocalypse now in space it apparently unfortunately also needs to have um this kind of action movie these action movie or thriller set pieces kind of po- which, like, like stuck into stuck the middle into, of it which which from i mean a technical standpoint look great fantastic the monkeys that, the monkeys are great i but i don't, it, I don't like the, the bad moon scene but the the especially that that fall in the antenna that opening sequence is oh, one fantastic. of the most like well, thrilling so, sort of sequences and that's I've what i would say is that space film this movie like, seems to be it wants to be one thing, which wants to be a beautiful meditation on how um, our child, like how childhood trauma can lead to isolation and how and why it is important to break free of that isolation and kind of live like in the real world, um, not just within yourself, not tamping down your pain to the point where like your heartbeat doesn't ever raise and you can deal with anything like falling from a space antenna and you're like your heartbeat never go above 80. But like to live a real full life is to let go of all of the, those things um, to, to scream out loud, spinning around in space under the rings of Neptune. Um, and then to come back fully aware of the things that you lost and like what you now have to gain from doing all this stuff. But, and there's in like the set pieces that you talked about, like the, um, like him falling from the thing, um, even that moment in space where he's just like floating there, and even like the weird um, hallucinogenic moment where he's going from, um, you know, after he's killed inadvertently, all like the people that are on the on the shuttle that are going to take him to Neptune, or that are are going to take him to Neptune, um, and kind of starts to go crazy. Um, you have those moments, but on top of those moments, you also have like I said, those people trying to kill him, like shooting guns at him, or the baboon scene, which I think looks really terrifying and is scary, but also is like an action scene, or the moon pirate scene, or Brad Pitt kind of, or him getting to that, you know, getting the underwater ocean scene, which they needed, I guess, to connect to that later scene where he's pulling his, you know, his uh, father close to him when they're floating through space. Um, it needed to either be a meditation movie or it needed to be an action movie, or like a space action movie. I don't feel like it could have been both. But the meditation scenes, I think, 
were really like super wonderful. See, and when I, the movie stopped trying to do something and just let it be about like this guy trying to wrestle with the facts of his life in space, I was like, this feels really excellent to me. And the other parts seemed like they were jammed in there so the movie could have some propulsion. Yeah, see, I, I, I almost vehemently disagree with that in the sense that, to, for one thing, just, just to frame that, like I said, those action sequences are so well shot and well comp- composed. It's, it's one of the best looking it's space fantastic. films I, I've seen. I, I mean, I, Damien I think, Chazelle should feel like an idiot. Yeah. Because uh, this like, takes First Man to like, a whole different level. And in terms of the scope and the isolation, and uh, you know, even James Gray talked about like, the hostility of space, this is a film that really excellently portrays that, like, yeah. kind of just the entire I agree with vastness you. of it. Um, like that entire lone travel to yeah, Neptune yeah. is like from a film standpoint and from the kind of velocity that the film was moving at at that point, you know, you got a punctuation of action scenes. That's kind of like separated slightly by that Mars scene. Yeah. But then the separation of just like that quiet narration for a long period yeah. of time gives you a real sense of scope of like how much distance is there. But here's what I would say. I don't think this is a movie about space. I think it's the the space. Oh is, no no! I want if they're gonna make this movie, space should be a symbol for something. My problem with this movie, and it's a it's a small problem because I think this is a really great film. And I take is maybe that I take a too, different. There's too much. It's too much about space. I, I see, and I take a different composition, like a different composition, a, a different idea of what I take away from it. Um, I I believe space plays a extremely prominent role in what Gray is going for. And that being said, for me, you know, punctuating the entire argument that, you know, Clifford Timely Jones doesn't find anything. And, you yeah, know, yeah, that, yeah. That, that transition of the argument um, being, you know, Brad Pitt's, you know, extreme dedication to kind of like the spirit of his father um, to only find out, you know, have that, have that really, that pretty one, one great line where his father, you know, where Timely Jones who actually sells that role pretty well. I think he's probably, him and Ruth Nega are kind of like the most solid parts of this film for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Brad Pitt, we'll get there, but no, I think, we'll, we'll I think Tommy Lee Jones, um, he does his Kurt but, scene very well. Like when he says, you know, for 29 years I didn't think about you or your mother is, is fantastic. Yeah. Because um, you think but, he means it. Yeah, and to me, like, yeah, absolutely. And to me that like, that you know, they do the entire like weird creation of Adam thing. Um, like, you know, simile with, with him trying to pull his father back in. Um, I, I took this more as a film, kind of like a contemplation on isolation. Like, we keep mm-hmm. kind of looking to the outside. Um, we keep trying to advance. And, like, even James Grayson interview with Volter about how, like, he represents, like, a lot of the ideas are, are kind of, like, on the zigzag path of advancement. Um, but we're looking, like, exterior. We're not focusing so much on the interior. And maybe that's a quasi idea of like our reaching for the stars or reaching for God or sort of thing. Um, which I don't really take it as a religious allegory. There is a lot of, there's weird, a lot of re- weird yeah. religious stuff there, well, but it's always, I think somebody looking, I think it just plays into the role of people looking outside, people looking into the vastness of the world around them, well, something greater, something beyond them to find something. When really the points try to make is like the thing that works for, you know, Brad Pitt's character for Roy, 
and maybe not for everyone else, is just this interior. Well, I think I actually think it's a really interesting the, point, and I think feel like there's a people. there's an essay to be written, I suppose, about this movie and its religious um, undertones in the sense that I got the feeling that I don't like, think I, I give credit for his movies. It, it sticks in your head. I think this is a great. I think it's a great film. I don't know if it works all the time. It's one of those movies that you're just kind of like, okay, when like there's all these parts that are really so good, and there's other parts that you're just kind of like, meh. And you just want those other parts to be stronger or not there or, like, for there to be a different other part. But it just seems – like, even, like, the, the Ruth Nega thing is Yeah, really, we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. I want, I want to hear your essay thought really But, quick, like, though. the idea that all these people – like, religion is not, like, a part of this movie. And then someone would bring up something about God. And it seems like one of these things where we've just progressed because we could and we don't understand it. So we are continually reaching for – um, something to help guide us through this thing that we don't understand. You know what I mean? And I think the 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 juxtaposition between like the captain who dies gets his face chewed off by the monkey, and then the subsequent captain who like can't pull the who Brad Pitt says is afraid he can't navigate the ship by himself. Um, he just shoots his gun stupidly. You know what I mean? Like everyone else is trying to do yeah, a close range thing, yeah. and, and they you know everyone dies. Um, like that thing, we don't really understand it. Like we think we understand it, but our subconscious knows that we don't understand it. So our subconscious is continually reaching for God to say, to comfort us. Or, or not the, even the God, bigger, or the, 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 well, the stars. We're or so far out there. What else is there? You know what I mean? Like Tommy Lee Jones, this is what Brad Pitt says to Tommy Lee Jones. He's like, now you know that there's nothing out there. So if there's nothing out there, if we know there's nothing out there, but we haven't figured out how to stop moon pirates or we haven't figured out how to stop you know um international like space antennas from exploding and people just falling well, I mean, thousands of that's, feet that's Tommy Lee jones fault you know sure it is but like there's also the protocol in place for like this stuff to happen you know what i mean um if that if they haven't figured out how to do any of that stuff but they have figured out how to put a subway on the moon like you gotta cling to something two different types of subways a restaurant and an actual subway. And an actual subway. If you um, can get Donald Sutherland into onto the moon, you have to ask yourself all sorts of different creationist style questions. And see, I, I guess this comes to the crux of my problem. Is is I was looking at this and I was looking at the, the tenements that are like kind of like the ideas being taught by this film or being kind of like exposed by this film, and I came away with it confused about how I feel. And I thought about it a lot at work today. I should have been working. But I was just <laughs> about it. And I think ultimately I don't think this is a success. I don't think it is a bad film. And I think it's a film worth seeing. Mm. Um, Especially in theaters. No, you have to see this in theaters. Uh, from, from a visual standpoint, this film's a masterpiece. I mm-hmm. can't. It's going to be hard for something to like topple this for like a special effects sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because they don't even look like, like special effects. No, no, and 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 like I said, there's a vastness. Like the, I, I don't think the baboon aspect looks great. Um, you know, and, and kind of like these parts that make it a technical feature work extremely well. The shot composition, especially like, you know, that that kind of like when Ruth Nega turns back. Um, you know, she's been born on Mars, and like everything's Mars looks so fucking ugly. And yeah, you, yeah. Like with that alone, you kind of get into like the head of like how miserable she is when everyone's kind of like claiming that 
you know, he's a hero, you can understand why she doesn't think that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it tells, like, a lot of just the, the visual aspects of the film tell the psychology of, of the roles. Um, and that Max Richter score is great. It's fucking so, great. Fucking awesome. Great. It's, you notice it at great points. It's, it's one of those scores that works so well in terms of, like, going, like, oh, wow. And the it's score different. is and it's it's different. It's got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. It, but it's enhancing the film, but it is doing it so well that you only notice it at, in increments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the rest of the time, it kind of melds, blends perfectly. Um, unfortunately for me, though, it, it is punctuated by those moments of, of action that, that feel as though they're there just so this film isn't too contemplative. Um, it is too long in the end in that I think it was a stronger thesis to end when he, you know, has that speech where he says like, you know, uh, I going back to earth and I can't, I can't remember the exact line. He says, I'm going to be happier. Um, like we don't need everything else with him, like reaching out for the man or seeing Liv Tyler again, the diner that, that, you know, holds your hand too much. Um, but the big reason this doesn't work for me is it requires long expanses of time to really believe in the emotive nature and the internal self of Brad Pitt and what he's doing. And we get that over half a film worth of internal diet, like monologuing Mm -hmm. and Brad Pitt, not really doing a good job at much of anything. He is the flat. It's the flattest kind of performance I saw of kind of like a stalwart character. Uh And I couldn't help but compare this in every single way. And I hate to be one of those like internet critics kind of doing this, but this film begs for that with its consistent psychological evaluations of what? mirroring baseline evaluations. Oh, of Blade this Runner? is just an extremely <laughs> inferior yeah, yeah, yeah. psychologically and and main performance wise Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Well, you know what's so f- and just the fact yeah, that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan Reynolds and uh, Ryan Reynolds, Jesus Christ! Oh my God, <laughs> Ryan Gosling. In that, <laughs> could you imagine Ryan Reynolds? Ryan Gosling in that is just, you know, his emotional turmoil from that baseline to having turmoil has such nuance and doesn't need internal monologuing. Um, like you can read all the emotions in that mm-hmm. that it makes you. And I, I don't want to like hold that against it. I always will hold heavy internal monologuing against the film. Let's I know doing when it. When the movie started, us. I was like, oh my god, I can't. I don't. I. I can't wait to hear, hear what Mario has to say about this movie. Um, and when this film kind of just perpetrates that throughout, yeah. um, I, I couldn't help but realize that a better actor in this role wouldn't have done a much better job at... Con- I mean, some parts of dialogue are fine. Some parts of internal monologue yeah. are fine. It works really well when he starts doing the internal monologue, out, like speaking out loud when he's going kind of crazy. But it just is so utterly hard to watch Brad Pitt in this role because he's just not doing anything to convince me of the emotional growth of his character. See, it's so funny because I actually thought he did pretty good and I thought it was only at the moments when he was needed to be really twisting like emotionally inside like so right after he fails like right after he you know delivers that transmission to his dad and then they obviously get something back, and then they tell him he's going to be removed, and they send him punches to his, a wall. They send him to that happy room um, with the waves, and then Ruth Nega comes 
and just wants to talk to him. And he's like, I would like my privacy. And I'm just like, I feel like he looks good. Like, he looks the part. He looks looks craggy and upset, but also, like, muscular. And, like, you know, he just... It was, like, a good-looking shot. But I was like, but he's not twisting. Like, he's not conflict... He's not wearing that conflictedness on his no, body No, absolutely not. In, in the moments in space when, like... Him and Tommy Lee Jones are like he's put like he's putting his dad's helping his dad with his gloves and his helmet because and Tommy Lee Jones is just talking and he's not saying anything and you can kind of see there's like there's it almost seems like his face is fighting to not do anything really emotive. And it's like, but no, you should be fucking yeah, twisting because with inside yourself and, here. And this is also from like that that Vulture interview with Graham's Grady. Like he mentions in that part that you know it's like becoming the parent of an Alzheimer's adult father and fucking tommy lee jones during that entire scene you look at you look at his face you look at his expression you're like oh this is a man who's, who's utterly lost yeah he doesn't yeah, know yeah. anything he looks like he has like alzheimer's in that scene mm-hmm. he looks like he doesn't understand why he's being taken care of he doesn't he doesn't understand what's happening and brad pitt's just kind of like putting on the gloves i'm I mean, a little he looks, sad he looks he looks sad but he doesn't look stricken. He doesn't look confused. You know what I mean? He doesn't look like the weight of like it shouldn't. 29 year or so years have just like fallen on their shoulders and that everything is like every... So, or, it doesn't look like his worldview has been just like yeah. utterly torn asunder. And it's weird because I thought Brad Pitt was really good at holding himself to Like he was really good in that movie when he was supposed to be holding himself together, but it was... He was almost not holding himself together. Like he was close to not holding himself together, but he knew what he was doing. He was an experienced pilot, so none of this stuff was getting to him. He just kind of moved to the thing. And see, that's the frustrating. He, he played that expertise good. I didn't. I thought when he, when he's being like, he's supposed to be emotionally flat, like not necessarily emotionally flat, but emotionally in control. He does that well. Yeah, yeah. But in those moments where he gets like a little stressed, or and I'm talking like even those quiet moments, like those kind of quieter moments when like the um, the assistant captain kind of starts feeling when he's supposed to have like a small bit of stress. He doesn't. He didn't show that well, and it's frustrating because you know we talked a few weeks ago with Seven. You know, um, well, even with um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah, where he's, but I think especially Seven, like 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 showing that kind of like manic or or incensed energy. He did that extremely well in that. I mean, maybe it's a bit overextended. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, a couple weeks ago, I think that was just last week, wasn't it? It feels like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it feels like a couple weeks. It's been a long week. Today guys. felt like a week. Yeah. Listening to the Donald Trump UN interview. Yeah. Well, you know what's uh, funny? But, that's, but that's the problem. It's just like it doesn't it doesn't feel lived in. And speaking of Seven, I don't know if you noticed this, but you know how in Seven he's always flattening his hair forward? It's like a yeah. thing. He starts like in the top of his head and he flattens it forward. He does that a bunch of times in this movie. I was like, you can't. And that's, I said to myself, I was like, I like what he's doing here. I do like and some of it, like the speech he gives about his dad when he starts crying, when he kind of like deviates from the script. I was like, that's really good. Actually, I'm not sure I've seen Brad Pitt kind of get that affected by something. Um, but he returned to like the flattening his hair from the middle to the front. And I was like, that's a Brad Pitt thing. Like, that's not a this character thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, and you can't have personal tics carry over from one movie to the next movie to the next movie to the next movie. Like, you would think that you're going to be inhabiting different these different characters. Maybe this guy flattens his hair, like, in a different way. Maybe this guy doesn't touch his hair. Maybe this guy, you know, whatever. But he's doing seven-style hair flattenings. And it's just kind of like, ugh, Brad Pitt. Like, be really present here. Like, the whole way. And that's the thing. I think this movie, 
wanted to, and maybe he didn't want to be something else. Maybe he had a monkey. He had moon pirates, and he had monkeys, and he had like um, in space gunfire in his mind the whole time. But part of me thinks that he, maybe he, maybe he didn't. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. But I think this movie is really speaking, wait, really quick though. Really speaking good. of the uh, baboon scene. Did the rest of the crew get murdered by those baboons? Are we expected? Are we yes. to believe they got rescued? No, they so got murdered by baboons. Twenty-three Norwegian researchers were murdered. Biomedical researchers were murdered by two baboons. And there's no evidence of it. I want to see. Don't you want to see that movie? Yeah. Well, even in the Tommy, even on the the Lima Project shuttle or whatever it is, like there's people with bags over their heads and like just people. Floating around dead in space, like where were the baboon pieces? Or the story of how Natasha Leone didn't age, or the story of what Natasha Leone was doing in that movie at all? <laughs> She's just there. Well, Jamie Candy was supposed to be in this too. We got, got cut, I think. Oh, did he? Maybe he was there. We just didn't see him. I don't know. That would be a that would be a Jamie Candy thing. To just but it was it disappear. was. But I enjoyed I enjoyed it. I liked it was a it was a good experience. It is. Um, we always say. That these films are worth a watch, and this is absolutely worth a watch, um, especially as we said in theaters. I it, it raised my anxiety quite a bit because it, it like space has always been a thing I'm not a fan of mm-hmm. at all, and this is plays into because of how big it is, and this plays into um, that anxiety for me, and, and it, so well that's I mean so for me it was I didn't. Because it was about see that's the thing. So space doesn't ever really mean anything to me. If it was an underwater movie, that might be different. So if we go to like, review like underwater, underwater. In, in you know a couple months, um, and so unlike High Life, which wasn't about space but took place in space, this movie was about space. So I didn't have to care about some stuff. So like even the things, so some of the visual metaphors and the symbolism, I was like, I don't care about this because it's in space. And it's just like a space, like the metaphor wasn't strong enough and the symbolism wasn't strong enough for it to distract me from the fact that it was just about space. And I was just like, Bleh. but you have other, I mean, you have other space, <laughs> space problems with it. Right. I mean, yeah. But the fact that like it went from, we're traveling approximately 1.2 million miles per hour to get from Mars to Neptune. It's pretty crazy. The fastest a unmanned ship has ever traveled is 164,000 miles. I guess if it's 100 years, maybe somehow we developed 0.1% times the speed of light travel. So now if also if a nuclear bomb explodes next to a planet, what does that do? Nothing? Oh, we'll go. Is there anything? I don't know. Probably explode a nuclear weapon and... I don't know. I don't think it would be enough to propel, propel, like, propelled him quickly enough back to Earth if he has no ability to be propelled. All like, the way back to Earth. Yeah. All I mean, the way. I mean, he would be propelled, but I don't think it would give him the speed needed to get back there to where he develops a small beard. A very well-groomed beard. Yeah. But if it took I mean, maybe, 79 days maybe. to get from Mars to Neptune, how that means it took him how long to get from Overall, the Neptune trip, to Earth? Well, I mean, if he was, it's 11 days from Mars to the moon in the film, and then like... 11 hours. Like 11, it's 11 hours, yeah. right? So it's, um, 
90 days. Took him three months. If he's traveling the same speed. That's a very good looking beard for three months. Maybe he's grooming it and just eventually got bored with it. Who knows? I don't know. The science in this isn't isn't solid. Even James Gray admits that the science Poof. wasn't. Some of the science didn't work. Like, like the launching from the moon and not. Because that was actually something he's like, oh, they're, they're planning on doing that. But turns out, no, they're just going to launch from the orbit of the moon to for Mars trips. Oh, okay. That's the eventual plan. But yeah, you don't need hard, hard science in these kinds no, of no, movies. No, no, no. But moon pirates. With I mean, photon lasers. Come on. Why do the moon pirates have bazookas? Photon laser bazookas. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's not worth talking about. No. The photon laser bazookas. If you really appreciate science in your movies and don't and dislike bad science, you might not like this. But again, and not to again, I don't want to belabor this anywhere. You were talking about like people really liking you were never really here, like water scenes and the water scene this movie clearly has seen you were never really here in the water scene. No. Because <laughs> it looks like exactly like it. It however has not seen you were never really here and not telling you everything about how you're supposed to feel. Yes, yes. That that's true. That's a lot. Um, all right, we'll be bright rack with my number rack with my number forty seven. Yes? Forty seven? Yes. Yeah. Welcome back. Um Oh, hey Mario. We never wave when we say welcome back. Who are we waving to? Are you talking the moth that's hanging out in the, the windows? The floor to ceiling windows in the in the no, it's outside oh. in the Pivotal Film Studios. My story moth number forty seven is uh, the two thousand and three film directed by Billy Ray, who is a person who actually has written a lot of stuff. He is. He is a very relevant human. Man, in he's movies. writing two big movies coming out this year, my friend. Yeah, co-writing Terminator: Dark Fate. Uh huh. And Gemini Man. Yeah. I mean, those are supposed to be big movies that people are going to write really weird articles about later that they didn't make any money. Um, it is Shattered Glass. Why didn't you get this? I don't know. Do you have phone numbers for all your sources on the Hack Heaven Vs? If somebody wants to do some kind of follow-up story. Called all the hackers I know, asking if any had heard of a hacker by the name of Big Bad Bionic Boy. Nothing. He's made some pretty serious charges. This looks very suspicious to me. I'm increasingly beginning to believe that I've been duped. The New Republic snobbies rag in the business and gets completely snowed. Have you thought about the impact this might have? If you fire him, people will leave. I go, Chuck, why don't you back me up? He goes, I'm sorry, Steve. I gotta protect the magazine. There are political considerations. The young conservatives piece. Was that true? This wasn't an isolated incident. He handed us fiction after fiction, and we printed them all as fact. What you're telling me is impossible. If you were a stranger to you, you'd dig and you'd bury him. Wait, there is one thing in the story that checks out. What's that? There does appear to be a state in the Union named Nevada. Don't call Steve Austin's story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shattered Glass is a biopic about... um, a year in the life of the New Republic, disgraced New Republic um, reporter Stephen Glass, who in the late 90s uh, fabricated a whole bunch of stories that he put in magazines like The New Republic and George and The Rolling Stone and a bunch of other stuff. A bunch of other magazines. He was a very with it, hot commodity in the Magazine press. Remember when magazines were like a real thing and they super mattered? Um, 
Sports he, Illustrated Playboy uh, swimsuit issue every year. Issue, yeah. Every year um, as a kid. He was the writer for a long time. And then um, he, people got wise to the fact that he was fabricating his stories. And it came out, turned out that he fabricated a lot of stories. Those More than geniuses at Forbes. Forbes Digital Tools, which was an online, a very early online digital magazine. Um, the story behind me seeing this movie is, is interesting. I was working in the spring of 2003, Mario, I was working at a B. Dalton with our mutual friend Chris, who, um, you know, we were, we were, you know, playing music and stuff like that, but it doesn't matter. We used to get these lists once a week of the new releases. And one day we printed out the list of the new releases and there was a, there was a, a, an anonymous book on there. And we didn't know what the title was and we didn't know what the author was, but there was a major release coming out. And we freaked out because we all just assumed it was a Thomas Pynchon book because it had been um, a whole bunch of years since Mason and Dixon. We had heard he was writing a new book. We thought it was a Thomas Pynchon book. That book would come out three years later in the form of Against the Day. Um, But we thought it was a major book. And then all of a sudden, the book that it's supposed to be shows up in the store, and it's this novel called The Fabulist by this douchebag named Stephen Glass, who no one had ever fucking heard of. Because we were cool guys, we didn't read The New Republic, and we didn't care. And we were you so didn't read m- Forbes Digital Tool We didn't either. read Forbes Digital Tool either. We were so mad that it wasn't um, Thomas Pynchon. We didn't sell any copies of The Fabulous when it came out. It was... They kept... There was an embargo on the title and like the author of the book because they thought it was going to be so huge that they would roll it out like unknown and... <clears throat> excuse me. And it would just make, ruin everything. It didn't do anything. Nobody cared about this book. But then in the fall of 2003, there was a movie that got made about this douchebag Stephen Glass starring easily... Mario, one of the worst actors in the history of the universe at that time. Hank Azaria. No, Hank Azaria is great in this. And so is the guy I'm talking about. And his name is Hayden Christensen. And he had fucking ruined Star Wars already by the time that this movie came out. Ruined it. In, in uh, Attack of the Clones. And any movie... You're stepping on eggshells right now, man. And he ruined a very you know, good Kevin you, Klein movie. You know me. Life is a house. You know me and my love of Attack of the Clones. Do you love Attack of the Clones? Is this a real statement you're making? No, Yo, I do. I love Attack of the Clones. I, Why? I think, well, you know me. I'm not a big Star Wars guy. It's just so dumb. It is very it's dumb. so fun and dumb. It's very dumb. Why is Natalie Portman's shirt cut off? I hate them! <laughs> After he... Kills all the Tus- every Tuscan raider in a camp. They killed the women and the children too. I hate them. Oh, Yoda does so backflips. Yoda does backflips after they did a Phantom Menace with Yoda as a puppet. They were like, Jango yeah. Fett gets decapitated and Boba Fett is real mad and then doesn't do anything about it. Here's a question, Mario. Episode three. Here's a question, Mario, to t- that we can discuss. Why are they basing, um. The model for all of these clones off of a bounty hunter named Django Fett. Uh, you want to answer that question? Because he keeps vaporizing people. Is that it? I mean, Boba Fett does that. That's right? the only thing. That's the that's the perfect clone army 
You, wouldn't you want a clone army of people I that su- vaporize other people? I suppose. We're getting off topic. <laughs> um, funnily enough, I just watched Attack of the Clones yesterday. You lucky bastard. Uh, <laughs> Well, I was watching Phantom Menace with my kids because me and my little oh. guy are getting prepared for the new Star Wars movie, and they literally had a question every ten seconds. What is this? What's a viceroy? What's a viceroy? What's, a, tr- a, what's a trade federation? What's this? What's this? It's like, what? don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, guys. What's supply side economics? <laughs> um, okay, to get back on track. Um, so I saw this movie. Oh. I'm yelling into the thing. Ah, there it is. My headphones are going crazy. Yeah, I don't know what's happening. Um, so I saw this movie. And I loved it. I fucking loved it. Because, one, Hayden Christensen is great in it. We've talked about this a couple of times in movies previously. Where like there's an actor who doesn't always work in what they're doing. But in one movie, the thing that that actor does well is exploited to the hilt. And they're great at it. Hayden Christensen plays Stephen Glass, who is insecure, who is desperate, who is masochistically um, trying to please everybody almost, like asking first when he sees people's faces, are you mad at me? Um, Almost on the verge of tears, like constantly, even when he's happy and laughing, like there's this weird kind of like, I could literally explode from like the pressure and the stress and whatever all the time. Every casting decision in this movie is literally perfect um, to the Peter Skarsgård as Chuck Lane, his eventual editor, who got a lot of, this is like where we discovered Peter Skarsgård and he would go from here to um, Kinsey as kind of like the it actor. He didn't get nominated for anything for this, but I remember vividly, because I love this movie, that Peter Sarsgaard was a thing. For a very brief moment, Peter Sarsgaard was like the guy actor. Um, you have uh, like a, you know, mid-career Chloe Sevigny and early Rosario Dawson, but like not early because she was in a bunch of stuff, but like she's just kind of here. Um, that post that thing you do Steve Zahn where he was just like the super funny guy and he was super he was funny in this too but he's um you know also a little bit serious um as one of the guys that works Adam Penberg who works for Forbes Digital Media um Hank Azaria is Michael Kelly Stephen Glass's original editor who like he's a big fan of um it's kind of like a who's who in a way and a lot of those movies don't always work when you have like a lot of it young it actors playing parts um but this movie works so good and i love it and i love to watch it and we talked last week about seven being like like a warm blanket movie that kind of like you just want to curl up and watch it and like if you you know you just know it so well it makes you feel so happy i suppose this movie could be the non-disgusting inverse or, or like um not inverse of that but maybe an inverse because this movie <laughs> Nobody chops off anybody's head in this movie. Nobody makes anybody eat themselves to death in this movie. Um, nobody makes anybody, you know, have sex with a prostitute wearing a huge, sharp knife, you know, uh, penis, uh, prosthetic penis, um, unless they get shot in the head. Um, there isn't any of that. It's just a, it's like a newspaper movie with really good performances and really good acting, um, a really good script with really well-defined themes and emotions. Um, Part of me wanted, I suppose, like 
upon the hundredth time I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, wanted um, more, maybe a little more backstory, like from Stephen Glass. Maybe I want to know where he comes from a little bit more instead of the just the suggestions that like people, oh, people expect a lot of out of me. Um, I'm under a lot of pressure. That's why I made everything up. But I also don't care because everything's there in the movie. All the emotions are real. All the emotions are very compelling. Um, and it's just it's just one of those movies, and I'm sure you have these movies too, that I will go to the mat for. You know what I mean? Like, no one talks about this movie. You know what I mean? It's, not a, it's got a 91%, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes. People liked it. Um, but nobody talks about it. It's not a remembered movie because it's it's almost doesn't make any sense anymore. You know what I mean? Like, there's no magazines anymore. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> nobody gives a shit about magazines. Like, the whole pitch in the beginning of this movie is that, like, the New Republic's, like, the magazine that's on Air Force One. Like, there's 100% not any magazines on Air Force One except for maybe what? Brett, does, does Playboy? Brett, does Breitbart have a magazine? Breitbart, I may have a magazine. I don't know. Yeah. Or does, I don't <laughs> Does he actually... Would he pick up a magazine? I have no idea. Um, but yeah, just... I love it. And I, I I know it perfectly. And I've seen it a million times. But there's always these lines and always these moments that like really fucking get me. Um, and maybe it's not... It's supposed to be one of those movies that gets you. But it does. And um, I feel really tense watching this. And I feel... I, I feel like all of the... Like, the stress that Stephen Glass is supposed to be feeling, like, I feel that. And maybe that's just, like, the mark of a successful movie. But I, for me, it's, like, um, you know, a very, meaning, like, a very meaningful movie. Getting inside a movie that much has always been kind of, like, a meaningful thing for me. But I'm, because I'm, you hadn't seen this yet, so I'm interested to hear what you have to say about Shattered Glass, Mario. It's pretty okay. Yeah, which is what I expected you to say. Um, no, it's it's irritating. It it's it's taunt, which I like. It's you know it it doesn't. A lot of these kind of like not biopicy, but a lot of these films that kind of like are the you know the biographical drama sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Have a, have a tendency to overextend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is barely over ninety minutes, which is nice. Uh, I disagree to an extent on. I think Kenny Christensen is good in this. But I didn't get a read on that character of actual fear or, um, you know, needing to impress others. I took it as, like, a, a good, like, telegraphed sociopathy. Yeah, In the yeah, sense yeah. of everything he's always doing. Like, when he says, like, are you mad? Um, or, like, he's... It's especially, you know, kind of builds and builds. Like, he gets, you know, the Hank Azaria's... Um, like Michael Kelly kind mm-hmm. of convinced with like, are you mad? And he tries it on, you know, Chuck and it kind of doesn't work. And that's kind of like what opens up the Pandora's box. Um, and eventually that, you know, I think to me, what really convinced me is that when, you know, he says, I, I'm not going to go, Chuck says, I'm not going to go anywhere with you. Mm-hmm. Um, when Steven's trying to play off the, I don't know what I'm going to do to myself. Yeah, you know? yeah. and, he, and then Steven just kind of realizes like, Oh, this gigs up. Yeah. You know? And so I took that more as just a profound, sociopathic tendency. Well, I think that goes to what I was saying about, like, they don't do a lot of backstory digging here, so you don't, like, so the H.G. Bissinger um, article kind of really goes into, like, where Stephen came from and kind of sets up, that was in Vanity Fair, and sets up why he may have felt compelled to, like, 
just make a bunch of shit up to make his reporting like the best kind of report, like you know, the best stories and and you know the most fun stories and all this other stuff. Um, but can but uh, so I think I agree with you. I think there's there's not a lot there, so it makes sense that he's just kind of seems like a weirdo, like but, sociopath. So beyond that, to me, it felt like a really solid mid two thousands HBO kind of drama, mm-hmm. like biographical drama, um, in a sense that it's not really moving a lot of mountains no it's not moving any mountains the performances outside um for for the most part are are solid but they're not like really strong or really doing a lot of work i think sarsgaard's just blowing like it's it's that's the one unfortunate thing about this movie is i think sarsgaard's performing at an entirely different level than Mm -hmm. everyone else including christensen i think it's just like as as an example of christensen like finding his mold and finding yeah yeah, kind of like this Lost voice works boy, good. Yeah, uh, yeah. works. Um, but Sarsgaard's like doing some real fucking leg work in this, like just you know playing a real lived-in kind of character who's pissed off that he kind of got he bought all this nonsense and never. Well, the really one guy who it. understands the ramifications of what this means. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I thought, I thought that was like just leagues of bond, and he he got what he got nominated for. The Globe for this. Yeah, he got a, um, he got a, a lot of talk. He just didn't get an Oscar. But my problem with this, and I think I would have preferred it a lot more, uh-huh. is them fucking clapping. <laughs> the goddamn end when he comes in, when you know Chuck comes in. Oh yeah, yeah and yeah, they yeah. wrote the letter, and they all start fucking clapping, and it works. It, the clapping part works really well, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I know it's trying to mirror like the fact that Stephen has nothing, blah blah blah, but it's so. Fucking stupid. Yeah, and it yeah. makes me so mad, and it like reminds me of. You ever watch our our, our hear any of the the jokes about Birdemic? Birdemic. It's like a really terrible bottom barrel sort of movie. It's kind of like one of those movies that everything like Cinnasins Cinnasins was kind of founded on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene where like the head of the corporation announces that like they just sold their company for a billion dollars. By the way, this is like a one story like office suite sort of building. So obvious clearly they had sold their business for a billion dollars. <laughs> and everyone claps for about forty to fifty seconds. Uh-huh. Um too long. No, it, it's it's <laughs> great. Um when that happened in this film, I just got reminded of that and I was like, this this isn't this I've isn't always kind natural. of I've never really liked the clapping really natural. Thing either, yeah. And it and it bummed me out. Because before then everything didn't have these weird kind of the thing I appreciated wasn't these weird kind of like biographical tinges of drama. Mm-hmm. Um, all the drama was very humanly contained. Um, to use an example, and I don't want to begrudge a film that hasn't come out yet, but we're talking off air about the Dark Waters trailer, um, and then the Mark Ruffalo movie coming out. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a part there, there's like a big dramatic moment, and who knows if this is going to be in the actual film. But it's kind of like endemic of what you see in a lot of these these drama film, a lot of these biographic dramas, where he like is scared to turn on his car because he doesn't know if there's gonna be a car bomb. Like, be like this film is devoid of that, and so it stays grounded and it keeps itself really interesting. With that's kind of like a dumb, boring story for a person like me. I don't I don't give a shit about yeah a yeah, and neither do I. I mean, neither do I. Um, like, journalistic integrity obviously doesn't mean anything ever since we've created a twenty four hour news cycle like maybe we shouldn't have that maybe we should regulate news media that's a <laughs> different podcast um but when they clapped i'm like 
Oh boy, there it is. Like this is a movie. There's there's why I can see like the the thing that takes me completely out of the groundedness. Mm-hmm. And like and I think it did it just didn't need that. No, especially because you know, it was another seeing, couple of him scenes. Him just seeing the letter, you know, him seeing the letter, juxtaposed with Stephen having the class clap with for him, because that is so like beyond the pale of normalcy, and it works to show that this guy's kind of like a selfish, stuck-up asshole, Steve, you know, because like they're portraying Stephen Glass as that. Uh, like it works perfectly to show his like kind of manic, like maniac tendencies, um, but then having like all the editors clap. Well, you just I mean, especially like after like on the Friday before they hated him, and then like they came around after. And a there's week another and a way to drinking. do that. Like maybe he, you know, the the publisher is sitting there, or the editor in chief is sitting there. Maybe he, maybe he just like starts shaking some people's hands, and they kind of give him a, like a couple of people give him a pat on the back, and they juxtapose that with. Like the fake classroom or, clapping or you know for him. What? You know what? Be fucking even before he goes into the meeting, have him go into his office, and they're all there in his office. Like he's about ready to prepare for the meeting. He goes into the office, and they're already in the office yeah, yeah. with the letter. It's not that there's and no that, options, and that it shows you know like they they took the initiative to do it. I mm-hmm. think even showing the letter shows that they took the initiative to to yeah, yeah and make their mistakes. Um, and that just bummed me out. I just saw that and I was like, this is a bummer. This went from like a really incredibly like top of the kind of like hill modern journalistic yeah, biograph- yeah, exactly. like biographical drama to just kind of a good one that has this really weird it's black just, mark of a writer who would go on movie. to you know yeah i mean that's one of the re- it's one of the interesting things that i think that's about- why i was like oh right the guy that did hearts of war and Volcano in Color of <laughs> Night definitely wrote this movie hey you leave volcano alone well, I like the volcano. Another great time of the Jones performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that the Brea Tar Pits? Yeah, yeah. That, that movie is great. Um, not, it's not a Dante's Peak, but it's pretty good. I never liked Dante's Peak because I never bought it. I, but it asked to be bought. Volcano never asked me to buy it. Buses can totally stop lava, Mario. That's true. Remember that. But cars can also drive over lava. Yeah. Just remember that. Remember that. Because Dante's Peak does that. Everybody remember. Yeah, I mean, and with just your tires burning a little bit. Yeah. Um, Grandmas can float through acid. <laughs> but this, uh, it's funny because it's, so it's 47 on my list. And everything. Yeah, why is it so far up there? Everything you say is true. Have you seen it so many times? Because I just, and I don't know if, like, if you want to, like, or if you know your list well enough that you can say, like, definitively. But, like, there's not a lot of movies that I just kind of love. Like, I have this thing with albums, and I have it with books. Like, I love that book. I can, or I, you know, I love this record. I understand that it, I understand all of its flaws. Um, you know, I understand what's good about it, what's bad about it. You know, I also understand it like from bottom to top. Um, I can you know sing all the lyrics to it, but it's not necessarily like. The, you wouldn't say, like, it's the greatest album of all time. Like, so me and my dad were talking about this the other day about perfect records. And I was saying how Elvis Costello has, like, five perfect records. Like, objectively perfect records. Um, you know, this year's Model Armed Forces, Trust, Blood and Chocolate, and um, uh, Imperial Bedrooms. But he also has albums for me that I love more than those records that I know I understand are flawed 
are objectively flawed, but for me are like thrilling experiences. Like Mighty Like a Rose. Like um, Spike. Like um, When I Was Cruel. Those records for me, while not objectively perfect, like are subjectively perfect. You know what I mean? And for me, this is a subjectively perfect movie. It does everything right, and I fucking love it. Versus the objectively perfect Imperial Bedrooms, the Brett Easton Ellis book. <laughs> I've never even bothered to read Imperial Bedrooms, because the last thing in the world we needed was like a follow-up book to was Lesson Zero. Zero. Yeah. Um, which, and I love hearing him talk about like Imperial Bedrooms and like why he did it and like what he thought he was doing. It's like, no, you just didn't have any ideas and you needed money. That's why you did it. You needed more cocaine. You don't need to tell me like what the creative reasoning was because there wasn't one. That is definitely a needed more cocaine moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that maybe White was a needed more cocaine also. And that's why it's called White. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, in like, you can put Seven in this category too, I guess, even though like Seven is a more like widely appreciated movie. And like a movie we're going to talk about in five or six more weeks, which is. I find to be like an objectively bad movie, but is a movie going experience unlike very few other movie going experiences. Star Wars Episode 2, Tackle of Clones. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Because everyone knows that Darth Vader just turns into Darth Vader because he did a bad, an ill timed backflip. So Obi Wan Kenobi could cut off all of his limbs while he was backflipping. You know what? He had That's the exact way that we needed Tim Tarn and Darth Vader. He had the fucking high ground. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, he should have... Uh, Darth Vader should have known better. But Anakin didn't. But Darth Vader does now. That's the lesson he learned. He was Darth Vader already. No, he wasn't Darth Vader yet. He'd already been called Darth Vader. But he wasn't, like, Darth Vader. No, he wasn't in the suit, but he was Darth Vader. He didn't know the lesson of the high ground. But now he knows it. And knowing yeah. is half the battle. Maybe, maybe being a... a G.I. A Sith should talk, should talk about angles. Yeah, that should be part of like the Sith Lord training. A Listen, Sith, if there's a, a guy Sith on the high an ground... Absolutes. An absolutes would be kind of like a flat line, not necessarily an angle. That's hmm. true. That's true. Um, the ghost is <laughs> back after months. But yeah, this is just one of those... It's one of those movies that it's just... It feels like mine, and I love it. And I really... And I just like love the shit out of this movie. And I, I know, that's the thing, and I know all the lines. And I know, and like, the t- tense parts just kind of make me smile. And, like, Chloe Savigny shitting on Melanie Linsky's writing, like, makes me really happy. And when, and I get, like, a kind of a jolt when Chuck is just kind of, like, dressing down Stephen on, like, a Bethesda, Maryland street because the restaurants are open, like, after 3 o'clock. You know what I mean? And, like... The way that these things kind real, of stack up. Real downer of an ending, though, huh? Like, the last <laughs> yeah. scene we get of Michael Kelly's, like, him sad, like, feeling betrayed. That, you know, that um, spring uh, breakdown was, was a lie. Yeah, and yeah. then you just get that nice little, like, oh, yeah, by the way, Michael Kelly died yeah. from the terrorist deck. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that actually was pretty bad. It's like, maybe um, just don't mention that part, guys. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, um, it, it's, it's this high because it feels like it's my movie. You know what I mean? Like you hadn't seen it. I we did this in one of my teachers. I really in, heard about it to be honest, <laughs> which is hilarious. It's like one of the teachers in my when I was at UConn. 
showed this. I forget, why, I forget why they showed this, but they go, like, oh, we're showing Shattered Glass as like a thing. And I was like, I love Shattered Glass. And she's like, you've seen Shattered Glass? I was like, a million times. Like, I fucking yeah, love I, this movie. I didn't go. She wanted me to go and, you know, get extra credit and be like another person. But I had things to do. I just think I had a sandwich to eat in my car. So that's... Wait, when do we hit this, like, the above sandwich part of your list? Well, it's because it had something... I have to leave. So part of me with my jobs and with, like, school was, like, I had to leave. Like, if I didn't have to be somewhere, I was gone. Because I didn't... I couldn't be trapped in school all day. It made me feel strange. But so there's no movies on the list that would would topple that? I don't know. That'll be a topic for another week. I've already seen him all so many times. I'm hungry. I just spent like four hours in school. I don't want to you watch. Need, spend you don't another... need to eat every day, Tom. You don't need to eat every day. I probably day. shouldn't. You're right. Speaking um, about not eating every day, we'll be right back with my number 47. Tom. Yes? Do you remember the past? How just much of the past do you remember? I remember the past. Remember three months ago, three ish sure. months ago? Sure. When uh, you had a film on your list, I didn't really speak much at all about it. Didn't even really respond to a lot of things you were saying. I, I just let you. I think that's a lot of movies on the back half of my list. You're like, that is just shattered glass. <laughs> um, this one, though, no, for me is not my favorite film from this director. But close. But it is the film that I find the most profoundly important in the sense of its universality. The film that's later on on my list is personal to me. But this film is, is something that I, I believe touches everybody. I was talking to my friend Megan earlier today. I know Megan. Thing. Yeah, the person. Um, and, uh, I mentioned that I just watched three movies last night because I watched the first half of this um, last night and then finished it today. And she's like, oh, you hadn't seen this movie. And it's not, you know, this is the type of, of film that not, you wouldn't think a lot of people would, would be so universally known, but it is. It's universally known, universally loved. But as I watch it more and more, it just becomes more and more personal to me and, and amazes me and impresses me and moves me and frustrates me in the ways I can't access it, um, in the ways I don't understand it because I'm not of its culture. Um, And that movie is Hayao Miyazaki's 2001 Spirited Away. One girl's future depends on her judgment. Aren't you getting wet out there? I'll leave the door open for you. (gasps) Her courage. It's Haku, he's hurt. Haku! Loyalty. Haku helped me before. Now I want to help him. Everyone, I need my shoes and clothes, please. And remembering one thing above all else. I want you to know my real name. It's Chihiro. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Experience a magical movie phenomenon. Embraced by all the world. Let's go! Yeah. <laughs> 
prepare to be spirited away. Did you describe it back when? Uh, let's let's do it again. Describe it again. Describe it again. Chihiro and her parents are moving to a new town. They, uh, father, like any father, tries to take it a nice shortcut. Shortcut leads to a tunnel. And the mm. father, just for some reason, decides to investigate the tunnel. I guess he's like one of those guys. Who I would have totally investigated the tunnel. Abandoned house. I would have been like, well, I made a wrong turn. No. Probably got yelled at by my wife. I'd have been like, you're right. Nope. You got to go in the uh, tunnel. They investigate the tunnel. They find an abandoned theme park. One of the many abandoned theme parks built in Japan in the 90s. They are... Uh, Chief Hero's parents are... Stoke be took over by the smell of delicious food, mm-hmm. which they ravenously consume. And soon they become pigs. And it turns out this theme park is actually on the outskirts of this bathhouse owned by this. It's witch. like a town. It's not even like a theme park. It's like Baba. a baba. Yeah, it's a yeah. town, an actual town, but it has because it it, it looks abandoned because it is a bathhouse. For the spirits. Ghost town. Literally. Yeah. Ghost, like, god town, kind of, almost. The spirits of this area, the spirits of Japan, uh, run by Umbaba, the witch. Um, and Chihiro has to become a worker of this bathhouse as she attempts to reclaim her name, which she gives away to Umbaba to get a job, and also to get her parents back from the pig monstrosities they have become before they are consumed mm-hmm. by the ravenous, hungry spirits of the bathhouse. This film just every every time you watch it, you can't help but be overwhelmed by it. Yep. You are consumed by every moment in it. I... For the first time ever, I watched this with the English dubbing, and it's still really fucking good. Have you ever watched it with the uh, English dub? Yeah. I, I always I watched, watched it with my it, kids. I always watched it with the subtitles before, because mm-hmm. I don't have any kids, ladies. Uh, unless you want kids, then probably don't. We're not, we're not <laughs> going to work. You didn't have to say that. We're not going to work out. Well, I, no, I, need to, I want to let my audience know. Okay, yeah. Nobody's going to have any ladies listening. Our audience kids. is very concerned. Not in the okay, Whatever. Go, <laughs> go ahead. I've always watched it with subtitles, and for the first time, because um, I don't own this film, so I had had, had to find a form to watch it in. Um, this this time around, I do have to do rectify that. I have to buy it. Uh, I watched a dub, and I was impressed by how much still, even with a dubbing, you know it. You think it would be something would be lost, but it isn't. It, it just moves you in. You know, everything about this movie is, in so many ways, just entrancing. Mm-hmm. It is a. I don't want to say it has a musicality to it. It just has. It has a spell, to it. Definitely casts a spell. And even in the simplest, smallest moments, when. Um, you know, Chiharo's kind of going around trying to look, talk to uh, Kamaji, 
you know, even like watching Kamaji as he works his magic and you get a long sequence of watching Cole be thrown mm-hmm. into a fire. You just want to keep watching it. Yeah. You want it to keep going on and on and on. Or even later on, like the, the, to me, the most amazing scene of this film, just from a visual standpoint of like that quote unquote stink spirit trudging in a long sequence. And this is a long movie. This is a, 125 minute long film it feels like it it doesn't it does. feel it, does. it doesn't like race past yeah. but you never feel like you want it to end but you do feel like you've been watching like, it's a meditation something kind it of eternal feels like a meditation yeah. almost like you it, it, it rests in itself and, and it takes a long time to get there but the entire time it 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 keeps you at this sense of calm and sense of of emotional ease mm-hmm. um and just like the, my favorite scene just that it's a, like i said a long scene where that kind of like stink spirit kind of trudges his way into the bathhouse and it turns out he's like a you know a lake river lake yep. or a river spirit um you know like the long shot of just cleansing him and pulling out all the trash and the dirt and the grime and the bike parts and the tires from him and he was reinvigorated and all of it it's just so consumes you um and i find it it, it's frustrating in so many ways as a film because there's so much there of of japanese culture of japanese idea uh, of ideas of of presence of moments that 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 you don't get as a western i don't get as a western viewer Mm. um you know require a depth of knowledge does that make you that makes you feel weird though frustrated in the sense of like i want to I want to live in this film. Is no, I just want to live even further in this film. See, that's the thing because I kind of feel the same way, but that doesn't frustrate me. I don't want to say frustrate. Frustrate doesn't. Like, it actually con- it makes me. It actually draws me further into the film. I would agree. No, because I, I, it it makes um. It's, like, it's so mysterious. It's like got that perfect. I mean, it's the perfect. And I mentioned when I talked about this, I talked about it in regards to my kids. Um, it's like the perfect distillation of what it must feel like to be a kid. Where everything is super scary, but also super, um, and I wish I was saying this more eloquently, it's scary, but also uh, just like flat out amazing. Magical, yeah. And you also feel like you can literally do anything, and, and this, you have the right to do anything, and you can walk on all the gutters, and you can never fall down, and like you can do everything perfectly. You can, you can run across a, a pipeline and yeah, you know, and break just, the pipeline, but you get to the ladder. And it's it's really scary, but it's also just like you just have to do it, and you want to go over there, and you help, you just want to see what's next. And like I've been playing, me and um, my little guy have been playing Final Fantasy VII, and um, I've been talking about. Um, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. One of the cool things about them is like you can go into all the towns, you can go into all the rooms, you can talk to all the people, and like the world is, you know, almost as endless as you kind of want to make it because there's all these corridors you can go down, you can go here and you can go here, and there's all these side quests, and you get that impression with this movie is that there's, if she had gone through a different door, there would have been a different character. You know what I mean? That's the thing. Like there would have been a different adventure. There is. I just saw this for the first time. One of Miyazaki's first films is Lupin the Third, mm-hmm. like one of his Lupin the Third features. And there's a very similar presence of like a major castle in front of the small town. Um, you know, the bathhouse representing the major castle, uh-huh. um, and the you know the town being just the, the shops in front of it. And like Lupin and his assistant are kind of like in the shops, and it feels so lived in. And it's like. You, know, you eventually get to the castle and you see all the intricacies of the castle, but it's like you, you open a door and this is what this is and that's what that is. And like, that's what, 
that is what is the the presence of this film is it is magical in the sense of it does capture the fear of, of kids like when chiharo is going down the stairs and just i love that scene terrified man. of going downstairs and as a kid you're like going down you know perfectly fine set of stairs was a nightmare story you know you just didn't want to go downstairs and all of a sudden she starts rushing down the stairs because she slips and trips and but she's fine she makes it all the way down you know she, she stumbles into the wall but she's okay but like why does that because i agree with you that's like a that's a brilliant fucking scene um why does that scene work so well part of me thinks it's because you go from like the hustle and bustle of like the house and she's kind of thrust outside and now it's all the way dark and there's that mist there's no banister so it's just like openness on the side of the house but it's a cartoon so should you feel the same kind of tension that you we talked about Ad Astra before when he fell off the fucking antenna and it's just like loose he's just loose in the air you know what I mean but you kind of feel that way too when she steps on those stairs like she's just she's just loose she's just out there and like what's gonna happen to her like when she you know and then she like you said she falls on the stairs and she, nothing happens to her but it feels like Anything, Anything could happen, happen to her. her, yeah. And that's the thing. And that's, that's what it is. It's like a present sense of danger, but still it's, it's got the, the magic kind of quality of, of the cartoon. And now it's interesting to compare this movie to like other animated features that people hold in really high regard because they don't really have that same quality to them. There's like a predestination to... I, I always feel like there's a predestination to every animated movie. You know what I mean? And I think it's one of the reasons that people respond so um, viscerally to, like, Toy Story 3, where it seemed like those toys were going to die. It seemed like we were really going to watch toys die. You know what I mean? And that's... And that that's, seemed like a, re- a real thing. And I wonder if that's the, the plays into the mystery of it. To the, to the fact of... So we don't understand... Anything. Uh, any of the, the folklore or the mythology uh, of, of the world we're in. Mm-hmm. You know, just as plain western viewers so at the same time because it's cloaked in this confusion and mystery you don't know what the expectations are of the tropes of the feature you know you think she's going to get out of the situation and she does you know mm-hmm. like like everything's hunky-dory except for the movers are probably really pissed because it's been two days yeah um all their shits out front just getting rained on uh but because of that, you don't know where it's going to go. You don't, yeah, you don't you, necessarily know if her parents are going to make it out or if she's going to make it out or if her coup's going to be fine. You don't know. You know. So it has, it's veiled. It's like you have that expectation. It's like childhood again. It's, you have the expectation built in that if you do the things you're supposed to do, you know, you, she does the processes she's been told uh-huh. to do, things are going to work out. But as a kid, you always go, but what if? Yep. What if this doesn't work out? And with that being under that veil of mystery, it, it works so well. Um, on the same point as a, a meditation uh, and, and just being such like a compelling story for, for, child, for a child, but also like moving you into a sense as adults of, of childhood wonder and danger – this is a profoundly great like environmental piece too. Mm, like yeah. one of the most probably one of the maybe the best environmentalist film 
like for me, um, in the sense that it, it, it fills you with an obligation. Um, you know, has, has children any of the present dangers or any of the present messages you hear of obligations and, and, and things you have to do feel like they have real importance? And, you know, how she cleans out that stink spirit who turns out to be, um, you know, that, that like river, the river spirit, mm-hmm. you know, like you get a sense of like, oh, like re-polluted it. Or when you find out that Haku yeah, yeah, is really so just the, you know, brushed over river that's become an apartment complex, you know, apartment complexes, you really get a sense of like, oh, what the fuck have we done? And, and, and you know, this film like does those things of, of environmentalism and especially like the ideas of, you know, the push of, of the, the impression of, of, you know, reformed Japan. Um, you know, like we've talked from with like Ozu and some of the, um, you know, like Tokyo story and the reformation of Japan and it's growing reformation. Um, but I think this is kind of that, that question that this does a lot of presence of mind of, you know, post eighties and nineties Japan, which had finally found its feet back as like technological powerhouses. But with that came that influx of capitalism and, you know, you get that no face creature, which is just the ideation of the capitalist force. You know, he's handing out, he's, you know, he's kind of like led in by good intentions because he seems innocent, he's living out, you know, yeah, yeah. gold and whatnot. People are entranced by the gold, and he just consumes. It becomes bigger and consumes and consumes and consumes, and it's a destructive, devastating force. But until the gold like loses its value, right? But like so, to that end, um, No Face is still. Well, it is a destructive... But it has a value. It still has value. It just loses its way. Not that it... Ha- yeah, it has a value, and it loses its way, but it's... In and of itself, it achieves a kind of sadness that a metaphor for a capitalist entity would not, in a normal movie, be allowed to uh, to have. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it says... Because it's, there's an... Chiharo un- says says he's hurting. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Like he doesn't want to do what he's doing. It's to, just he's drawn to do it. Which always puts into my mind the sense that, like, we don't... Like, we understand the river spirit got dirty. Pollution. We understand um, Haku, you know, globalization, capitalism, building an apartment, building a river. Like, we forget the things... We forget the things we are supposed to remember. We still don't really know anything about the No Face. And even though the No Face brings its own, brings a kind of destruction with it, with the gold, its, its sadness is, is real and is, might be representative of a bunch of unknown like feelings and, and, and like an unknown destruction that like we can't fully perceive yet you know what i mean like we're doing the, if it's like that kind of allegory then we're doing things that we can't all the way know and we think we know it because it looks like gold yeah, we and think I, we know who it is but in reality we don't really know very much about it and that, i mean it go points to the ad astra thing again we're like we think we've got a really good handle on something but in reality we don't have any like we don't have any kind of handle on it and it's in uh, that's why like the the you know, the almost ballad that gets written of the no face in this movie of, of he goes from X and he, you know, ends up at Z, at Z. Um, 
is just one of the is always one of the most moving experiences, you know, in movies. Yeah, for exactly. Me. That transformation and where he starts and where he ends up is just so powerful and sad and, and like overwhelming. And and I think that's this is such an interesting thing about this film is is you know even Ubaba, who in a lot of ways kind of represents the the influence of of Western ideas into the East, like you know she yeah because she's she's very Western looking. Yeah. Uh, her the the core and all that of her, of the top of the towers very kind of like european influenced mm-hmm. um it kind of looks like his imagination of switzerland in, in uh kiki lupin the third lupin the third also but well kiki is lupin the third. kiki delivery yeah. service is also a, a reimagined western european city yeah um just it's, it's just so great uh but um like even she's not necessarily a villain like, like everyone has their intentions and where they came from. They have their purposes and their reasons for being there, but it's just this collision of ideas, you know, and, and misunderstanding of ideas and misunderstanding of the generational gaps. I, I know Miyazaki said, like, you know, like a lot of the, the ideas and presence of this film was that, like, in his, like, and like grandparents' times, they believed that the kami, the spirits, were like everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, existed in everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that kind of was like lost in his in his time, you know. That the spirits yeah, weren't yeah, ever yeah. anymore. Like in the influence of, I mean, not even religion, but the influence of just just the ideas of the time and the advancement of science. But he's like, you know, bringing the thoughts that like, you know, with that came a loss of like environmentalism, a loss of of sanctity in the world around you, and and maybe there needs to be returned to that. Um, you know, the parents becoming literally like just constant consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, being transformed into pigs because of that, you know, like there's so much profound value than that, but it's, it ultimately works so, so well because it never preaches it. It no, never, no, no, it never no, no, becomes no. preachy. It retains its innocence. It retains its, its quality as fable. Well, no, and that's, that's so paramount. Like somebody's, yeah. you, know, you look at Ferngully and Ferngully becomes this preachy monologue. We're going to look at Ferngully. Yeah, I, I moved some more stuff around. It's my, my number seven. I'm going to knock that off. Sorry, Spielberg. Ferngully. Uh, the last n- Another hint, was... guys. Number seven, Spielberg. Um, uh, we're going to put Ferngully well, But right to there. that point, like, so they let, every, you know, what I perceive as one of the most profound scenes in the history of film is, like, the train scene with the no-face just skating across the water. There's no... I don't want to keep talking about, like, comparing this to Ad Astra because they don't compare... But Miyazaki James James Gray, if he was listening to this podcast, though, definitely would be like, "What? Yeah, I, like, no, no, do please do." do. He doesn't. Miyazaki never. He doesn't lean on anything. It is a pure visual, emotional experience. So he's he's got the whole movie to this point, and then they get on that fucking train, and it is you are just awash in all of these different feelings that you're getting through orally through your ears and visually like through or, orally through ears orally a u oh orally got it this is like a nevada orally. nevada conversation i say orally orally cuz orally would o- orally i say orally orally huh i'm going to title this episode orally 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 um, ironly, you're getting it. You're getting that emotions sensually. 
You're not yeah. being told, please feel this emotion now. You're being showed it, not told it. Exactly. Like a dinging as the door closes, and instead of a please keep your hands and feet in, please step away from the yellow line, it's please feel the following emotion. Chihara wasn't like a psychological evaluation, <laughs> my heartbreak. Chihara's not like, I really miss my parents. No face, my I'm, feelings are emotionally complex. I don't know if I miss my parents. I've been told all my life I should miss my parents. <laughs> yeah, what the hell is that? But yeah, no, just just it is the best example of fable of of film fable to me. Um, the innocent film fable, like like a like a pure tale to te- like to tell a child. Yeah, like this is. This is a film at like age five, even though it's got some, like five or six. I'd show to to my kid. Yeah, like it's got some. It's it. got some violence. It's got it's got Baba getting a paper cut and being. Yeah, but it never feels cut in half. Quite. And Haku gets really cut up by those those paper birds, but it never feels exploitative. So it's never gratuitous. It's never gratuitous. It always. So that's the thing. So even when you're watching, it, even if you're a kid. When you're watching it, you feel like... Unless you, unless you don't like radish spirit skin, in which case you yeah. find it really exploitive. It's sexploitive at that you, point. Yeah. You, um, you feel like there's a reason you're, you're watching it. You know what I mean? It always feels like there's a reason for everything. You might not know what it is, but like you can sense it. Yeah, and, if you're, and when you're a kid, like when you're young, it's so kinetic. Like even when things aren't moving, there's so much energy. Well, and, and that's and that's like I said for a movie that's 125 minutes and it feels that at times, you always have something to look at. And it's so funny, Mar, that you're saying that because, and it plays exactly into what I said when I was, was the gold star point. Um, it points to what I was saying to tie our conversations together, is that, um, I'm less interested in my own feelings about it now. Like, I want to see it again in, like, two years through my kid's eyes. Yeah, has Jane, has Jane seen this one yet? A bunch, a few times, yeah. Um, and, oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, but I'm, I'm um, interested. To, I'm interested. Has the boy seen it? Yeah, the boy. <laughs> Go to the boy. I feel like it's a Tommy reference. Um, he's seen it, though, too, right? Yeah, he's, and that's the thing. So he was, he was five when he saw it. And yeah, we, we mentioned this in, in and we all just kind of sat there like, like nobody said anything, nobody got up to do anything, nobody said like, oh, this is scary, nobody said anything. Everyone was just kind of like sitting there, like dumbfounded, like what is this thing? Which just kind of led me to believe like, it's, it's gonna have, it's gonna come back to them. You know what I mean? It's not gonna be a thing that is easily, easily lost. And I feel like they've moved away from Kiki a little bit. Um, they were a big Kiki. I feel like they've moved away a little bit from Ponyo, even though Ponyo was a beautiful fucking movie. Um, and even like a little bit from Totoro. Like they love the idea of Totoro, and they love Totoro. They love what Totoro represents. But like as a movie, I feel like they're not like they get Totoro. You know what I mean? They under they've been in the woods, and they've found hidden paths, and they've found. Like, at the Brooksvale Park in Hamden, there's these huge bushes that are so big um, that you can go inside of them. There's, actually, there's a state park in Norwalk that's attached to, like, an old house, which has this massive tree, which has branches all the way around it, Mario, go, like, to the ground. 
So you walk inside of this tree, essentially. They know what that feels like. Um, that kind of hidden mystery of, of nature. You know what I mean? Those moments have not resulted in uh, the revelation of a Totoro. But they know how it feels to kind of part leaves and to see like the world from a different perspective. They're never going to know what Spirited Away feels like. You know what I mean? And I think that's kind of how I feel as an adult. And But I can't really imagine what that must feel like as a kid. Maybe it was like how I felt when I watched like Labyrinth or something, which is not on my list, but which is like one of the movies that would probably be my on my one fifty. Like I'm never gonna know what this feels like. This is a world which I'm never going to experience. Yeah. Um, Labyrinth was terrifying, so I didn't connect with it as deeply as like someone might connect with Spirited Away. But Spirited Away is so its emotions are so deep that um, you can kind of take it with you forever and like you said just to keep going back to it and like pull a new thing out of it that you're just kind of like i don't get this but it's really moving doesn't, the shit out of it doesn't me. matter and maybe yeah. and so those movies like if i'm lucky enough to live to 60 i've all seen god forbid several yeah, okay. don or, don jr's junior eighth term yeah <laughs> no just regular donald he'll survive that oh my god summer. um he'll be he'll be impeached seven times at that point uh I think he could be like the first. Let's hope he gets impeached more, more than once, more than once, or more than seven times in fifty years or thirty years. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, but it's one of those movies that that you could come back to as an old man or an older man at sixty. I guess. Well, I feel it, like, like if we talk, if we decide to talk about this in a couple, in like, in like, uh, in uh, a next year. year, and we were just like, oh, we just decided to watch Spirited Away again. We'd have like a kind of the same conversation but also a different conversation be like oh this moment which we didn't even discuss at all and which if like, like this one or thing like if god forbid i ever had kids um <laughs> I, i'm sure it'd become an entirely different beast for me yeah has it has it probably became an entirely di- different beast for you it was because i'm just i'm viewing it through their i'm just only viewing it through their eyes now like it's still i can still be moved by it but like the whole time i'm just kind of like i wonder what they do feel you, do you like Seeing the world through other people's eyes, I find it awful. Um, I like watching certain movies through my through other people's eyes because I think I think my eyes are the best eyes. I need so. glasses. I need glasses. I, I should con- not. I wear contacts. I should not be doing the uh, volume of night driving that I do. Probably. Shouldn't tell the cops that. The, all the all the Milford police that are listening to this podcast are oh. gonna drive up. Dear God. The, no, it's the Woodbridge police with their Hummers. No, the, oh, their armored geez. Hummers. This would be waiting for me. Which are not good for the environment, probably, I assume. They're definitely not, but Woodbridge feels very protected, I'm sure. They should probably with watch their armored Spirited Away. They should. If you want to get an armored Hummer. Or if you were you currently probably driving an armored Hummer. Pop up on the internet and look up an armored Hummer to buy. And then after you're done with that, you can tweet us at twitter.com. Slash film pivotal. Is that the end of what you say? What? We don't have any other things? That's right. We don't have any other things. Or you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com, which I have not updated in a while because I have been busy doing things. Um, and you can see a list of uh, the movies on our list. Up until like 79 probably. No, I think it's like 51. No, I did 50. I might have even done 49. 
Wait, you're like, oh, I did 48 too. Maybe. I don't know. This has really been like the longest fucking day. It's been a long week. And it, ha- it has, but like, I was saying to a kid, at the, a 15-year-old kid at the library, I was like, you know how there are some days that feel like the end of like some something significant, like a significant period of your life, and you're like not sure what the next day is going to be like? Today feels like that for some reason. Like, I just really have no idea what's happen- what's going to happen tomorrow. How'd that 15-year-old respond? Um, he seemed cool with it. He was just like, sir, I, I just want to <laughs> check out... I just want to check out this book. This... No, he was with it. Copy of Barb Wire again. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Pamela Anderson movie? Uh-huh. Oh, man, Mario, that was, that was obscure. <laughs> well, we knew. That's why you and me do a podcast together, because I knew what you were talking about. Um, or you can go, Jeb, we also have a um, list of how to subscribe to us on various uh, uh, podcast subscription services. And uh, you cannot see our Instagram, because we got rid of that. Just just in case you were wondering if we decided to jump back. We're not, get, back we're not getting it back. We're yeah. not getting it back. Are you going to do it back? No. God, no. Good. What would I do with it? All right. I don't know. What would I do with that? I gotta take a picture of this beer. I haven't taken a picture of the beer in a while. Oh, jeez. A mess. Falling apart here. Um, but yeah, you know. Uh, if you want a contemporary memorandum of this podcast episode, uh, Whistleblower provide that to you after <laughs> it's been voted on and approved by the majority of the Congress. We have a, we've staffed a Whistleblower. Yeah. He sits here at all times and just... His name's Michael Flynn. You think that's who it is? Refi- he got fired by Trump and re- no, re- rehired. We just hired Michael Flynn. What's he doing? My favorite thing about this whole... Michael Flynn, if you want to be the guy who takes minutes <laughs> during our podcast... Mario, I'm going to be honest with you. My favorite thing about this whole thing is that Trump released like a transcript, I guess, of whatever the Not call Not a transcript. Let's, released... let's get this straight. He released... A transcript would be an actual quotes. dialogue written, but a transcript... You can't, just, just to okay, clear yeah, the air yeah. for these big old dummies out here who keep calling it a goddamn transcript. It's, at most, a contemporary like, memorandum. Okay. A, brand, remember, a presidential... Not a presidential, but a memorandum of conversation, which was started heavily by Ford, and like the national security advisor under Ford was the one who really heavily did it. There's a reason why there's thousands of that. But it's literally just a guy who we assume maybe listened to the transcript, listened to an audio recording, and then just wrote down what they the, the juxta of what was said. My favorite part of that is Trump knows if it's incriminating, it's going to be bad for him. And the stuff he released is super incriminating. Well, the bad thing I'm is... I'm not 100% sure what he thought he was releasing. The, the problem with it, But it, it sounds too, exactly like what the like Congress it says is, that it is. is. Is his lawyers and the people in the, um, the administration... Do I don't think, think you can say it. that anymore. I think it's just him and Giuliani versus, like... The world? Like, the world from, like, ancient Rome until now. But one thing, you don't need explicit quid pro quo in an impeachment... And articles of impeachment. But you have but secondly, pretty explicit quid pro quo. But ex- ex- secondly, you don't even need, to a degree, I don't know, was it Russell 92 or something like that? Russell V, I can't remember, from 92 says you don't need explicit quid pro quo in, like, legal findings either. I mean, the memorandum doesn't work. Because it's basically hearsay at this point. It's somebody writing recordings of what they heard. 
but that won't work in a legal setting. It could. I'm not be, even talking about a legal it, setting because I'm just saying talking about a political setting. There had to have been a whole bunch of Republicans in I the mean, Congress like, that like saw what got released today and were just like, "Son of a bitch!" Yeah. Like mother. <laughs> Like, why would he just... He hasn't released anything else. Richard, why would Richard he release Shelby, this? Richard Shelby just pounded his head seven times like, oh, the God wall. damn it. No, it's not even them. It's like Susan Collins and Joe Manchin are just kind of like... Well, I, no, because Richard, I, Richard Shelby, Richard Shelby like, if we don't forget, voted to acquit um, like Bill Clinton of lying under oath. Yeah. And like all the other Republicans did. I mean, he did the obstruction. He said guilty on obstruction of justice. But you know, he's going to have to like, if it gets to it... He's going to have to be like, yeah, you're guilty on both. Yeah, we definitely wanted to get to an hour 45 here. So I'm glad we piled on top of this. Well, everyone, everyone, make... heard, everyone heard our ending. Like, yeah. they know, they, they, if we keep the politics at the end, at least they know when the shut off. It's just, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't even know. What the, the problem is that, like, I should know what to think. The information that came out today, along with all the impeachment stuff, you, I should know how to feel. Have you, have you heard his, like, the, did you listen to his UN, like, press conference thing? Which was what? That, the, uh, the world does not belong to globalists. It belongs to patriots. No, no, that was his speech. Like, the actual no. press conference he had yeah. today where he answered, like, three questions. It's bad. He had, like, Stephen Minnick and um, Mike Pompeo there. He's like, I'll take three questions and I'll pass it over to, like, Mike Pompeo. He answered one, which was obviously about the impeachment, and then immediately passed it over to Mike Pompeo. And then he comes back, gives it to the Fox businesswoman, and then she immediately asks him for proof that the economy's improving. And he just looks like, even you guys, like in his head, you could just be like, you can tell he's like, I thought this was a safe bet. <laughs> I thought this was a safe bet. <sighs> the world's on fire, Tom. And all we have are movies. So drink a beer, do a movie. We'll talk to you next Tom's broken, that's why I'm doing the finish. Unless and we're we'll dead. talk to you next week. Unless we're both <laughs>